I know this must seem like an annoying bureaucracy, but really, we have to get one of these over to the prefecture to police whenever we're dealing with a missing person. I've already been to the police. I filled out one of these damn forms, and it's not a missing person. It's a kidnapping. Oh, don't you think that's a little bit premature to be so positive? No, I don't think. I have witnesses. My wife was kidnapped. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? Yes, yes, of course. But what would you like us to do exactly? Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I'm the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews since 1996. Check out all of my written work. Quipster.net is where to go, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out the link that goes to my other podcast. It's called To the 90s and Beyond, and as you can imagine, it does cover films of the 1990s, although with a little twist there. I also cover newer films that were influenced by films of the 90s as well as the 1980s. Companion podcast to this one, to the 90s and beyond. Check that out at quipster.net. Today, I'm going to be getting into the third part of this three-part series looking at films, Hitchcockian films of the 1980s that were directed by acclaimed directors. Kind of failed last week. Initially, it was going to be directors that won the Academy Award for Best Director for other films, but apparently Curtis Hansen did not win the Academy Award for L.A. Confidential, as I thought he did. I guess in my mind, he really should have. But if it's any consolation, the director that I'm going to be doing today, his film, his Hitchcockian film of the 80s, this director won the Best Director Award. The director I'm going to be talking about here today is Roman Polanski, who won Best Director for Chinatown, as well as The Pianist. Well, he didn't get an award for the film I'm going to be talking about today, but that doesn't mean it doesn't have its own merits. The film I'm talking about came out in 1988, and it is called Frantic. Frantic is an R-rated film. It does have violence, some language, brief drug content, and sexual content. The runtime is two hours in length. The main star primarily in every scene, really, Harrison Ford, with supporting roles going to Emmanuel Seigneur, Betty Buckley, John Mahoney, and Gerard Klein. The director, as I mentioned, is Roman Polanski, who co-wrote the screenplay along with Gerard Brock. Now, the main premise of Frantic, it starts with this heart surgeon named Richard Walker, as well as his loving wife. They travel to Paris. He's scheduled to speak at this medical convention there. And while they're unpacking in their hotel room, they discover that the wife somehow picked up the wrong suitcase at the airport. She can't open it. And so they report this to the airline. And while his wife is doing that, Richard is in the shower and she receives a phone call and then subsequently leaves the room. When Richard comes out of the shower, he is waiting for his wife, who does not seem to be returning. And he starts growing anxious and he wonders what happened to her. And eventually, after Doing a little bit of sleuthing, he starts to come to the realization that maybe she was abducted. Now, with the French police offering little assistance to Richard and and not seeming like they're going to take the case even seriously at all, Richard begins this odyssey through Paris's dangerous 
areas, searching for any trace of his wife's whereabouts. Much more to the story than that, but I don't want to get into overt spoilers, at least not this early in the review. The origin of Frantic started back in 1985. Roman Polanski, very acclaimed filmmaker, as I just mentioned, he spent 10 years cultivating the film he was doing at the time, a comedic adventure called Pirates. He not only had spent many years cultivating it, but he spent two years mired in Tunisia, wrangling this most expensive production in his career. Elaborate sets, erratic weather, there was a big sprawling cast, all manner of beards and wigs and costumes and makeup, and all of that made just doing continuity from scene to scene a never-ending nightmare. So Polanski vowed that his next film, he felt, should be much smaller than this, preferably one made close to his Parisian home. But Polanski did not want to make some sort of romanticized love letter to Paris like so many others have been done. Irma La Douce, uh, an American in Paris, but something that would showcase Paris's seedier side. All of the blight, the drugs, the crime, the litter. Maybe a thriller would be an ideal way to showcase this. Uh, a, A thriller was a genre that Polanski longed to return to. He hadn't really found the opportunity to because he was making bigger and better and more acclaimed things. When Pirates proved to be a massive flop, Polanski knew that his career could probably use some rejuvenating because he felt, he knew, in the film business, you're only as good as your last picture. So his idea, his thriller idea, would be very inexpensive. It would probably be very easy in his wheelhouse. And that is something that could probably restore his reputation very quickly because he could get this film made in a lot less time than Pirates took. What, what he made should probably resemble something akin to a Hollywood effort, or as close to a Hollywood effort as possible, because Polanski had fled the United States in the late 70s to keep from serving additional jail time for statutory rape of a minor. In order to make American audiences feel at home, to make it an, more of an international hit, he felt that maybe he should cast a young Hollywood star, And the premise should be something that would be universally relatable. And he felt that what would be relatable was the kind of anguish that we all feel when a loved one goes missing for a a lengthier than they should amount of time. You know, our thoughts begin to grow darker, continuously wondering what might have happened. We start to panic. You know, what point do we get others involved? At what point should we go to the police? And how agitated, how irritated do we become by the seeming indifference of all of these other people that we take these problems to? Polanski's initial premise, he felt, should involve an American newlywed couple. They would be honeymooning in Paris. And after this opening scene of their lovemaking, the husband goes into the shower. But when he comes out, he finds his wife is no longer in the hotel room. As time passes, he would begin to grow worried. Eventually, he would involve the hotel staff, and then they would involve their security officer, and then he would go to the police. And his limited understanding of French would raise very frustrating language and cultural barriers to expressing his urgency after he begins to discover clues that she may have been kidnapped. The police seem initially unconvinced by this, so the newlywed man decides to go it alone, traversing Paris's seamy underbelly, hoping, among hopes, that he finds her. Now, despite the poor performance of Pirates at the box office, Warner Brothers still approached 
Roman Polanski, he was still a hot director on collaboration possibilities. And that's when Polanski mentioned that he had this thriller idea. He pitched it to Warner. Warner agreed to fund $20 million to put it together. Polanski immediately coordinated with his longtime screenwriting partner, Gerard Brock, on this story treatment. And their creative relationship usually involved Polanski coming up with a lot of the big ideas for the film. He would orally act out all of the characters that were needed through the course of their story, while Brock would perform the hands-on process of writing all of those things down, all of the dialogue, their ideas, into a written format. Brock did understand very little English, and so the main protagonist was going to be an American, so the first treatment was mainly in French. Polanski wanted to start his story with the protagonist experiencing severe jet lag, and that would further contribute to his disorientation over the course of the rest of the story, compounded by a lack of sleep, because he's always looking for his wife, as well as not getting any moments of peace, being in some of the worst areas in town. This disorientation would cause him to act contrary to his rational nature of being in control and exerting some sort of authority. The audience should not know more than the protagonist to avoid him seeming unintelligent. And due to the character's building neuroses, Polanski first envisioned that Frantic would be cast with Dustin Hoffman. However, he later felt that in order to kind of increase his themes, he should go for an all-American type. Somebody was known for being honest and upright and physically strong. That would probably be much more relatable to American audiences, so he felt maybe somebody like Harrison Ford or Jeff Bridges or Kevin Costner would work even better. Harrison Ford, as I mentioned, he obviously was the one who accepted the role, and it came through serendipitous circumstances. Ford's wife, who happened to be E.T. screenwriter Melissa Matheson, she was working for Steven Spielberg at that time on a screenplay about the Belgian comic strip character called Tintin, something that Spielberg himself would later direct in an animated form. Spielberg did own the film rights at the time. He wanted, at that time, Roman Polanski to direct it. Around Christmas of 1987, Matheson was invited to Paris to meet with Polanski about this project. Harrison Ford insisted on accompanying Matheson because she happened to be pregnant at the time, and he was very worried about her safety because there were a lot of recent terrorist scares in Europe in the news at the time. Matheson and Ford stayed in Polanski's Paris apartment, and while they were out at dinner, Polanski asked Ford what he intended to be his next film. And at that time, Ford really was not sure. He was in between projects. He had been reading through a seemingly endless stack of unpromising screenplays. So Polanski politely mentioned that he happened to be working on something that he thought that Harrison Ford would be perfect for, and he showed Ford the treatment. Now, Ford could not read French, so Polanski decided he was just going to translate it for him as they go along, page by page. And as he did this, he proceeded to stand on the table over the next 90 minutes, and he acted out all of the various roles and dialogue that he felt should be in this story. And by the end of it, Ford was completely won over, because Polanski was very exuberant about the way that he was talking about this project, but he himself also deeply related to this story, being a man who would do anything to protect his wife. Ford said that if the script was exactly how Polanski described it, and if it were in English, he would take the role. Warner Brothers obviously was ecstatic. They were going to sign one of the world's biggest stars to be in this relatively low-budget film. 
However, they weren't as enthusiastic as Ford when Polanski pitched his treatment to them. They cited that his story seemed to have a lot of logic loopholes that they didn't quite understand, and they felt that Polanski and Brock's ability to write American English dialogue was not going to be believable without them incorporating some outside help on the screenplay. So they decided to hire a procession of script doctors to come in and try to help Polanski shape it into a script that could cater not only to American audiences, but specifically to Ford's strengths. Many of them came in and out. They didn't seem to work out, but it wasn't until a man named Jeff Gross, he was an American author who happened to be living in France at the time, that somebody clicked with Polanski enough to see the screenplay to its completion. Polanski and Gross spent about two months fleshing all of this story treatment out into a script form. Gross specifically strengthened the American dialogue with customary idioms, and he injected things that would be observed by an American, specifically like how the French come across as arrogant to many American tourists. Meanwhile, Brock's limited English did come into play here. He provided authenticity for the French characters who struggled with how to communicate with his American protagonist who didn't know French. And at the same time, Ford himself was consulted over the phone regularly to try to provide character touches to put forth his character, Richard Walker, such as whether he might set his watch to Paris time while he was on the plane to Paris, or would he wait till he got to the hotel to do it? Little touches like that that would add extra believability. Now, one of the things that Polanski sensed was that Ford happened to be a very loose person generally, but if you start to get too close to him too soon, he becomes very tight, very protective of his privacy and all of those things that he holds dear. So he incorporated that into his protagonist, and he decided maybe a cardiologist would be the best occupation for this character because it a cardiologist would capture Ford's meticulous tendencies and his need for constant order. Ford liked things a particular way, and his character should probably unravel completely when he's confronted by all of these forces that are beyond his control. This doctor would rely on his instincts that he's dependent upon most of his life, but they wouldn't be working out for him, and he would grow anxious and frustrated as he had to trust very unreliable things to ultimately try to patch his life back together again. Now, for heightening the audience's identification with the doctor's despair, they decided to alter the couple's relationship into not newlyweds, but a firmly established longtime partnership. The wife would be somebody who was instrumental for many years in her husband's moral rectitude, making him the man that he is, as well as a great professional success. And through aging up these characters, they developed a new reason for their visit to Paris, the husband's speaking engagement at an international professional conference. In the original treatment, the wife was just going to be abducted because the wrong suitcase she possessed contained drugs that were expected by the Paris drug cartel. They decided eventually that drugs were just way too cliche, had been done too many times in movies, so they decided to opt for something that Americans would find even scarier when they're visiting Europe, specifically what Ford was initially scared of for his wife, international terrorist threats. Polanski recalled this 1985 incident that hit international news involving the smuggling of 800 Krytrons to Israel. Instead of drugs, maybe the MacGuffin here would be a Krytron, which was a, a device that would be sought by Arab terrorists for triggering a nuclear weapon. 
To prepare for the role, Harrison Ford met with several surgeons, but he found very little in terms of their personality traits that they all shared in common, except for the way that they applied authoritativeness that they had in the operating room into all aspects of their personal lives. Ford specifically based his character on a more real-life French cardiologist named Alan Carpentier, one of the first, in fact, the first in Europe to perform an artificial heart implant. And he did all of that in preparation for the film, even though the doctor really had no scenes that required him to practice medicine at all. Ford keenly noticed how Carpentier often expressed himself using his hands, especially in an authoritative and very elegant way, which he incorporated into his own performance. Polanski also decided to write in a role for his then 21-year-old former teen model girlfriend and future wife, Emmanuelle Seigneur. Polanski based her character, Michelle, on many of the rebellious party girls that he had met when he was frequenting Parisian nightclubs. Seigneur happened to be, in Polanski's mind, more innocent, more sober than Michelle. And her personal choice of wardrobe didn't really look bold enough during screen tests, so they had to radically change her look. Polanski wanted a very tough, very street-savvy look for Michelle, somebody who would feel comfortable traversing the Parisian underground with this impetuous attitude that served her well as a black market trafficker of goods. Polanski gave his costume designer and makeup artist a picture that had been taken by a friend of this female hoodlum in a subway who was wearing a a leather jacket, and that became the prototype look for Michelle. Now, due to her poor English, Polanski sent Signe to London's Berlitz School for several weeks for this intensively paced language learning course. She took mime lessons from Anne Sicko, who happened to be Marcel Marceau's wife. She took vocal and dance lessons to try to help her shyness and confidence. Signe also, since she was going to be starring in this big film with Harrison Ford, she lost... 10 pounds for the role, and her more pronounced cheekbones were further accentuated with additional makeup to make them look more sunken in, maybe like a junkie's might. She found that her heavy makeup and all of the leather attire she wore created a a virtual mask that helped her find an authentic personality for her character that was very different than her own. So she decided to stay in that ensemble even when she was off the set to try to retain that attitude at all times. Seigneur also infused Michelle with childlike impulsiveness as well as a love of dangerous games. She was like a a kid in an adult body, but her games are much more perilous. She felt that Michelle was maybe amoral rather than immoral in why she did what she did, and she would also have a flirtation with Walker that was born from this desire to be noticed and admired by somebody that she grows to value. As for the role of Sandra Walker, the wife of Richard Walker, who goes missing, Polanski initially envisioned a very sexy actress in his mind for that role. But after he looked at a a variety of audition tapes, he came across Betty Buckley's. Buckley was somebody that Polanski respected due to her performances in Tender Mercies and Kanto. But here he felt she gave the only rendition in her audition that made her seem much more like a mature woman. And he felt that Buckley would represent the kind of role that would feel right as the wife of a well-known cardiologist. She would be rounded, very supportive, a maternal woman that Walker would be married to and with whom the audience would have an instant identification. As far as the smaller roles, they did seek American actors who typically appeared in comedies like John Mahoney and David Huddleston because 
Pulaski thought that they could quickly provide the essence of their characters without relying on caricature. And he also did the same for the French language roles. In addition to the work that he did with Gerard Rock as well as Jeff Gross, Warner Brothers still felt that there were additional problems with the script that needed a little bit more punching up. So they asked him to call acclaimed screenwriter Robert Town for assistance. They wanted Ford and the other American characters' dialogue to seem a lot crisper and the plot to be even stronger. Now, Town and Polanski had a big falling out after they had worked together in 1975 on Chinatown. They vehemently disagreed on its ending, and they never forgave each other over many years. And that resulted in Town vowing he would never work with Roman Polanski again. So kind of a tall order. Frantic's producer, Tom Mount, he decided he was going to read Robert Town's latest script, which was for Tequila Sunrise. And he told Town that he would get it on the screen somehow and even let him direct it if he would work with Polanski doctoring up Frantic. Now, Town obviously saw this as an opportunity that he wanted to take, and he also felt that time really had healed that wound well enough. He didn't have the same animosity that he had felt back in the mid-70s for Polanski. And in retrospect, he realized that their collaboration was, overall, it still was a good one, despite their strong artistic differences. Town flew to Paris to work on the frantic script for about three weeks, and during that time he weeded out unnecessary side characters and a lot of elements that he felt that didn't build on the core plot. Other touches that Polanski wanted to put into this film, he wanted Sandra Walker to wear a red dress before she goes missing because a red dress would stand out. It could be described very easily by Walker. He could just describe his wife as being a woman wearing a red dress. So he didn't have to continuously try to describe her throughout the film. He also happened to find while he was out clothes shopping with Seigneur, Another red dress, not necessarily for Sandra Walker, but he thought that it would be good for Michelle as a way to contrast and compare the two women. And it would also stand apart from the very monochromatic look that he wanted for the rest of the film. There's also a lot of other things that Polanski brings into the film of his own experience. You know, this really is his version of Paris, the way that it's kind of thrown out there, the gym that, that is visited at one point in the film, that's one that he actually went to, the blue BMW in the film is is his own, and the nightclub, the Blue Parrot, is a faithfully recreated studio effort from the Bandouche, this, his favorite hotspot where he met many women very much like Michelle. The costume designer flew out to uh, Southern California to shop with Ford to try to find the, just the right outfit from America that would be as neutral as possible, something that would not really call attention to itself as extravagant or maybe too ugly. And this was somewhat inspired by a Hitchcock film, uh, North by Northwest. Roger Thornhill has a blue-gray suit that's he felt that he says is suitable for any occasion. So that's precisely the kind of suit that they were going for for Walker. Interiors for this film were mostly recreated on the set rather than in real locations because Polanski felt that a set was much more freer, and he felt much more at home. It produced a lot better results, he felt, in the overall product. He didn't have to block streets. He didn't have to deal with all of the random people walking by. He didn't have to risk that there was going to be bad weather that day that would match with other scenes he was trying to shoot. And they could do whatever they wanted with the decor on the set. They could modify it. They could remove walls whenever necessary to try to get camera angles and, and place lighting in places that wouldn't be possible if it were a real place. In the end, Polanski felt that it ended up costing about the same, but with less annoyance. 
Rebuilding the hotel lobby, where many scenes take place for the film to change the decor to the requisite gray of the rest of the film, that's so much easier than having to disrupt a real hotel full of strangers who are walking in and out. Plus, they could move the reception desk as they needed and add additional aesthetic touches, including a grand well-lit ceiling and huge lamp there that wasn't actually in the real hotel that they were basing it on. Polanski liked to have his actors rehearse scenes about a dozen times or so in rehearsal. He really wanted to study their movements, their expressions, before he set up the shots. And this helped him to determine the best location for the camera and all of those shot compositions. And once Polanski felt things were ready, they would go right to filming after they had done those rehearsals and those setups. As Polanski is as committed to meticulousness as Ford... They would do as many takes as necessary until they both felt comfortable with the results. Seigneur was initially intimidated by having to work with Harrison Ford. She was a very inexperienced actor, and an actor of his caliber, she felt, was going to dominate all of their scenes. However, Seigneur found Ford very generous in trying to help her draw out her performance, and she felt she worked even harder than she customarily might to try to impress Ford with what she could do. So as the film progresses, Michelle's tough exterior begins to soften, drawing out her feminine side, and all the while her demeanor, her movements, her gestures, her style of walking begin to change as her character gains confidence in herself and comfort around Walker. Polanski encouraged Seigneur to add something unscripted to each of Michelle's scenes, come up with something. Seigneur decided to use a lot of body language for capturing ways to express communication beyond the dialogue that was in the script. And so she improvised a lot of gestures. She added personality quirks that gave Michelle's inner thoughts without the need for dialogue, adding a comedic aspect to Michelle's personality to try to counterbalance Walker's very somber despair on his mind. Polanski really liked what Seigneur did with the role, but he really loved what Harrison Ford was doing, even though the character was very far from the way that Polanski envisioned him when they were busy writing. Polanski decided to be a much more permissive with Ford in his performance to do the role how he felt was right than he would have afforded other actors because he felt that what Ford happened to be doing seemed to be a better alternative to what he had in his own mind. Polanski told Ford one day that he probably would be a fine director. And he'd be honored, if he became a director, Polanski would be honored to act in one of his films. Ford shrugged all of that off. He felt directing was way too hard. He preferred to collaborate instead of dictate on the film set. The respect was reciprocal. Ford enjoyed Polanski's open-minded attitude to try to let him mold the character arc of Walker. And it really surprised Polanski when Ford changed the dialogue during scenes but he decided to allow it so long as what Ford was saying was consistent with the meaning of the, the scene, especially since a lot of it felt better than some of the words that were written down in the script. Later on, though, when screening the dailies, Polanski did wonder if he should have at least tried to do a take where he insisted that they play things out exactly as he originally wrote it in the script so that he could at least observe which was better during the editing phase. Ford would come up with a lot of different character touches. For instance, there's a, a famous scene in which Walker is, sniffs cocaine during the film when he's kind of cornered by a drug dealer. Ford argued that Walker would never intentionally, as a cardiologist, use a recreational drug and that ingesting it must be some sort of accident that he regretted. So it was kind of forced upon him 
according to Ford. And Ford also additionally convinced Polanski to have a, an extra note in that scene to show Walker washing out the cocaine in his nose afterward. Ford also appraised Polanski's directorial instincts, the way that he found ways to introduce character touches that other directors would have overlooked. Actors could always contribute ideas in Polanski's films, but Polanski's ideas were usually so strong by the time that they went to film that the best that an actor could really do is try to fine-tune a little bit something that had already been deeply considered by Polanski. It took Ford a while to get used to this director who told him exactly like how to put a cup down or how to pick up a pen. By the end of the film, he would call Polanski one of the best directors he'd ever worked with, and he appreciated especially how Polanski recognized his own complexities as a person and brought them out in his performance as an actor. Ford also, as with many of his other films, he insisted on doing most of his own stunts, which put the crew of Frantic on edge constantly. Ford believed that seeing the real star in a perilous situation that they know is not a stunt person would make the audience even more concerned than they would have been naturally with something they knew to be artifice. The sloping rooftop, there's a, a kind of a set piece where Walker is on the rooftop trying to, to get an item. That was not on top of a real building, but it was still 30 feet high in a studio, and the shoot for those scenes took place over six days walking around on this 30-foot high incline. A lot of people around the set could not stand the sight of Ford and Polanski just walking around haphazardly, knowing that they could have fallen and got seriously injured or worse. Ford said that putting himself through this perpetual state of anxiety for his character and his frustration, it began actually to take his toll. He took all of that anxiety and frustration home with him every night, something that Matheson, his wife, was equally unhappy about. When it was finally over, Ford felt overwhelming relief to be able to shed all of those feelings for good. Betty Buckley similarly had kind of a, a backhanded compliment for Polanski. She called him a master manipulator of actors. For instance, she recalls this scene in which a character dies. Polanski was not satisfied with Buckley's reaction after several takes, so he ordered the makeup artist to add gruesome wounds on the fallen person that Buckley inspects. And when Buckley performed the next take, she naturally reacted very viscerally, so strong in her revulsion that she felt close to vomiting. While she was deeply upset that this had been done, Polanski merely just smiled because he had gotten the reaction he'd wanted out of her through all those takes. Ennio Morricone, the, he composed the music. He did it prior to the end of production. He had not really read the script or even saw any of the footage. He just came up with music based on the things that Polanski told him they needed for the film. And Polanski would kind of cherry pick here and there where to add which composition. After Polanski put together a rough cut, Warner execs did view it. And they thought that the intended cut that he had gone with felt too long, they asked for him to try to trim things down to two hours or below. And they really weren't happy, especially with the ending. They thought it should be much more spectacular of an ending. Initially, the rough cut ending had Richard being chased by Israelis in a boat once used by the Arabs. And it was only later, while they were out in traffic, that Richard discovered the Crytron in his pocket and he just threw it into a dumpster. They felt that that took too long to develop, and it was very anticlimactic when it happened. Now, although Ford strongly urged Polanski not to change a single frame of his first cut because he thought it was perfect, Warner preferred that in the ending that Walker would immediately find this Crytron in his pocket, and he would toss it into the Seine 
and that would be used basically for the North American release of the film. In Europe and other parts of the world, they went with Polanski's originally intended ending. Although Polanski disagreed with Warner's requests, he did consent to reshoot a few things that they found problematic because he also wanted this film to be successful for the reasons I stated earlier. He felt having Warner Brothers enthusiastically behind pushing his film was also worth these compromises. So he went ahead and did them. Some scenes were excised that contained a little bit more misunderstandings and maybe some colorful characters that tended to divert a little too much attention away from Walker and the core story and maybe parts of Paris that seemed a little too picturesque for the kind of drab and dreary look at Paris that Polanski wanted to achieve. After these reshoots, Polanski looked at this film and he did concede that maybe Warner Brothers, what they wanted was somehow better than what he originally had put down. For the editing, the producers themselves hired Sam Osteen. He was a a veteran film editor. He had worked on Polanski's Chinatown and Rosemary's Baby before. The release was set for February of 1988, and this would mark Polanski's first studio effort since Paramount's The Tenant in 1976. After Polanski performed the compromise, the, the reshoots that Warner requested, they liked what he did enough that they even started discussing doing another film with Polanski before they even know if Frantic was going to be a success. But unfortunately, despite all of the things going for it, you have a, a very well-known director, Roman Polanski, a very hot star in the 1980s like Harrison Ford. Warner Brothers' money behind it and an obvious attempt to try to make this film a commercial success that would appeal to American audiences as well as others international. Frantic did not perform as well as they'd hoped at the box office. It earned a disappointing $17.6 million in the, in the United States. It did perform better in other parts of the world, particularly in France, but still definitely far, far short of what they were hoping for, given the star power of both the director and its star. In retrospect, after the fact, Polanski says that if he could redo Frantic, he probably would have chosen a different cinematographer, maybe alternate film stock. He didn't like the color scheme of the grays and greens and the blues that he was going for, and the blacks he felt were not black enough for a good quality contrast. He really just does not like the way that it looks, the way that it it lacks pop on the screen. You know, definitely is not the best commercial for Paris tourism, but I do feel as a film, it, it actually still works effectively as especially as a Hitchcockian thriller and a good genre return for Polanski I think Harrison Ford has a very outstanding performance here as the doctor and he really ties that film together even when the film seems to veer off into you know misguided directions which it does from time to time I think the film itself for the first 45 minutes is is it at its most gripping it has a really good mystery at its core but As with most thrillers, things begin to sag somewhat when Dr. Walker gets closer to finding out the truth. There are a lot of contrived coincidences that that push the plot along, and it kind of sinks under that weight into becoming an implausible thriller, despite all of the people that worked on the script to try to make it much more plausible in terms of covering over those logic holes. Now, although Harrison Ford talked with great pride about making Frantic, he did feel that its lack of success in the United States came because it still retained a little too many of its European sensibilities. And that the pace really, you know, the the title was problematic because the film's pace was not as frantic as a lot of people thought it should. He 
quip that moderately disturbed might be a more fitting title. Now, critics, when it came out, they were mixed to good in terms of their uh, assessment of Frantic. They compared, obviously, the film to uh, Hitchcock's films, especially The Man Who Knew Too Much, and uh, with the humor of that classic replaced here, though, with more somber grit and tension. And I do think that Seigne makes a very impressive debut, even though there's some nepotism involved in her casting. I think she she actually is one of the highlights of Frantic. I think with some tightening up of the action, maybe a, a snappier script than they ended up going with, this could have been a classic thriller. They had all of the elements there. But I do think that there's still a lot to the like, enough to recommend this very interesting and suspenseful endeavor. And that's why I will give... Frantic, three stars out of four. Three stars out of four on my scale means that I do think that it is worthwhile for people who like this kind of film. If you're a fan of thrillers, especially Hitchcockian-type thrillers or throwbacks from the 1980s, you will get what you're probably seeking enough here to find it an entertaining good time. If you're not really a thriller fanatic, you know maybe this is not going to, to hit nearly as strongly for you. I think if you're a big fan of Harrison Ford and or Roman Polanski, you'll find enough nuance in what they're doing here to find it an interesting entry into their filmography as you're studying their films. So for all of that, three stars out of four is the best I can give. Frantic, a film I've watched a number of times, more impressed with the individual performances, especially by Ford, than I am with the overall plot as a whole. Ford and Polanski did continue after this uh, as good friends. In fact, Harrison Ford accepted Roman Polanski's Oscar for The Pianist on his behalf because Roman Polanski and his, his legal troubles in the United States keep him from setting foot here. Anyway, if you have your own thoughts on Frantic that you want to impart to me, something I may not have discussed that you want to talk about, you can write to me. You can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. I do encourage you to check out that site for links to my Twitter feed, my Instagram, and my Facebook page where you can find other goodies that I throw on there from time to time relating to the films I talk about here. As far as what I'm going to be talking about next week, where I'm going to start another th- series of some sort, and I'm specifically going to talk about one of the biggest films of the 1980s coming up next. I've had a lot of l- smaller efforts for the past several episodes, so I'm getting back into what might be considered a pretty big blockbuster. Another film featuring a wife who is kidnapped and held for ransom, although there are a lot of other people that are held for ransom along with her. But it's set not in a hotel, but in a high-rise building, and I guess you're probably well ahead of me. It came out the same year as Frantic. It is called Die Hard, and that will be the film I talk about on the next episode right here. around the world in 80s movies and I know a lot of you have been expecting that for a long 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 time but until then thank you everyone for listening and joining me as we travel around the world in 80s movies (laughs) 